1: This is The Red Line, where we talk to three expert witnesses about one issue shaping the news both here and overseas, and I'm your host, Michael Hilliard. For this program, we've reported on a number of civil wars and struggles for power throughout the globe, ranging from the breakaway Soviet Republic of Transnistria to the intense slaughters in the deserts of Libya, and whilst all of them had shaky ground to begin with, None of them come close to the brittle and compromised foundation this week's nation was built upon. South Sudan is the world's newest nation, born from almost 50 years of civil war with its previous masters in Sudan. When the country ended its fighting with the North, it seemed like it was a no-brainer to guide the South Sudanese down the path of independence. They were religiously different, culturally different, geographically different, and best of all, they sat upon what was thought to be a decent oil reserve to help power the engine of growth in this small infant nation. However, immediately after independence, the rose-coloured glasses quickly lost their tint, and the reality of the situation bore its teeth. A nation with deeply divided tribal lines and a vastly overestimated natural wealth, as well as the abandonment of the international community, were fertile ground for what has become the worst refugee crisis throughout Africa. A civil war has now raged for seven years, and has destroyed entire homes and villages throughout the country, as well as cost the lives of 50,000 of its citizens. Now the country is attempting to find peace once again, and taking a second run at patching together a nation that has been destroying itself for years. But will this peace deal work? Or will it fail like all the peace deals that preceded it? Will we finally see an end to the fighting? Or will this deal crumble again and drive the two sides straight back to war? Well, to answer that, we turn to our first guest.
0: Part 1. Breaking the Mosaic. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Well, the first time I landed uh, in South Sudan, it would have been, I think, November 2009, Um, I believe, and the first memory I have is stepping off the plane and just feeling like I'd stepped into a pressure cooker.
1: Alan Boswell is the Crisis Group's Senior Analyst for South Sudan and has been covering the country since its push for independence. He's been an advisor to institutions like the UN, USAID, and the US Institute of Peace, as well as a regular contributor to publications like Time Magazine and the New York Times. And he joins us today.
2: You know, South Sudan is sort of in between what you would call, um, you know, North Africa and East Africa to a degree. Um, um, And really, it's mostly categorized in East Africa under those purposes. But, um, you know, it was attached to Sudan, which Sudan and the Sudanese elite largely consider themselves um, Arabs and carry a political Arab identity with them. And, you know, South Sudan was always part of Sudan uh, since colonial periods um, and and but but the South Sudanese themselves uh, are, are African um, in the colonial period. Uh, you had uh, you, you had a situation where the British basically card on uh, South Sudan off um, and instituted different policies in South Sudan, ostensibly to protect South Sudan, but created a dynamic in which in which. Uh, in which South Sudan was essentially attached to Sudan, but but wasn't very attached socially or politically, and was significantly underdeveloped. And then, at, when when Sudan achieved independence, it, it it achieved independence with this with South Sudan, which was which saw itself as politically quite distinct um, uh, for much of the period. And and then so for most of the for for most of the 60 some years after independence. Uh, if I'm getting my years right, um, you know, you had periods of civil war in which South Sudanese at various points and in various areas were were mostly fighting for independence uh, away from Sudan.
1: So let's talk about the Sudanese Civil War. Was South Sudan fought to break away from Sudan before South Sudan falls into its own civil war?
2: Uh, as As what happens in many of these wars, you know, in which you have a liberation struggle that lasts for a very long time, people... People started fighting at various points and in various areas from different communities and, you know, their exact motivations were not always the same and their exact uh, proclamation was not always the same um, in terms of what they said they were fighting for. But broadly speaking, I would say most of these movements were 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 fighting against what they considered uh, oppression and being treated like second class citizens within Sudan, basically because they were because they were not Arabs or, or Muslims um, and, and because the area was significantly underdeveloped and was continuing to be largely exploited rather than developed, um, you had, you had uh, different insurgencies that would happen. The first one of these congealed into something called a Nyanya, uh, and this was in the 60s and early 70s, and that ended in a peace deal in 1972. That peace deal more or less fell apart in 1983, and then you had this new movement start up, which was called uh, the Sudan People's Liberation Army, uh, and this is the, this is the movement that eventually signed the peace deal in, in 2005, that led to South Sudan's independence in 2011. And actually, that movement officially was not actually fighting for South Sudan's independence; they were fighting for a United Sudan, but they very much wanted to basically. Elected to power in in Khartoum and then changed the way the country was was structured so that so that basically all South Sudanese had more or less uh, political equality. That was that was the ostensible motive, but all along, most South Sudanese were more or less uh, secessionists, and the leader, the founder of that. Rebel movement. He actually died within one year of signing the, the peace deal that eventually led to South Sudan's independence. And his successor, who's still the president of the country, was a was was a very ardent separatist. And when South Sudan finally had the chance to vote for independence in 2011, they voted some 99% for independence, uh, which which everyone who who uh, was in the country and had been following it. Uh, knew at that point that was, you know, that that was the outcome that was going to be there. The secessionist sentiment was very, very strong.
1: As well as being a cultural divide between Sudan and South Sudan, is there a religious divide between North and South as well?
2: Uh, there's is, there is, there's a difference in demographics for sure in terms of religion. Um, uh, for sure, the North is predominantly Muslim, although not entirely. and. Uh, the South is more mixed. Uh, the South definitely has practicing Muslims. Um, the South has a lot of self-identifying Christians. Um, I most of the political elite at the moment are, are identify as Christians um, and a lot of the people do as well and then in a, a, a plenty of there's plenty uh, influence still in sort of traditional beliefs as well and customs. Um, so the South is definitely less uh, Islamic than the North, although plenty of South Sunnis also practice, practice Islam and continue to do so.
1: The biggest international backer of South Sudanese independence was the United States. So why would the U.S. be so keen to support this movement?
2: That's a great question, and it's, it's actually a slightly complicated question for the reason being that actually when the U.S. Uh, helped broker this 2005 peace deal, as I said, the leader of South Sudan at the time was actually not officially a separatist. And so, the U.S. was in this position in which, even though they helped bring an end to this peace deal, and like you said, are very much uh, the outside power that supported South Sudan's independence bid, um, they they also they also at various points officially saw themselves as 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 not being pro secessionist, as basically supporting South Sudanese um, against against. Um, You know, a regime in Sudan under Omar Bashir that was seen as an enemy of the U.S. Um, uh, But but officially, the U.S. government was not really pro secessionist. Now, unofficially, you had very strong lobbies in Washington, uh, D.C., that were very, very strongly um, uh, pro uh, South Sudan and I would say pro secessionist for South Sudan. And these people wielded a lot of power and it was a very bipartisan coalition and it mostly included evangelicals on the right side of the aisle and then you had a lot of Africanists and um, African-Americans and human rights activists sort of on the on the left side of the aisle and and the South Sunni's uh, rebel, uh, the South Sunni's liberation movement was very very effective at, at building this bipartisan uh, political support uh, in Washington and you know I'd say that the main role that Washington really played is you had peace talks starting in the 1990s, um, and 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 the U.S. really sort of corralled a lot of the regional countries, the neighbors, um, and who uh, sort of united in in uh, in pressuring the Sudanese government, uh, which had created a lot of enemies internationally and and within the region, um, and so the U.S. was providing humanitarian uh, support as well as uh, financial support to these countries, um, and, and they were in turn supporting uh, the, 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 the rebels in South Sudan, um, and, then, and then that sort of support eventually basically forced the Sudanese government to the peace talks and to the peace tables, um, and the U.S. continued putting very heavy pressure on the Sudanese government throughout this time to basically negotiate with the South Sudanese rebels. Um, and, and they put enough pressure on that the Sunni's government actually agreed in a peace deal to, to give South Sudan a referendum for independence, which, which many outside observers you know, doubted that any Sunni's government would ever agree to do. And it was largely a product of uh, US pressure that, that, that uh, led uh, Sudan to eventually give in uh, to doing that.
1: So after South Sudan gains its independence, things go smoothly for a few months. But then tensions start to rise between the two major tribes of South Sudan, the Dinka and the Nuer. Can you elaborate a bit on that?
2: Yeah, so the two main ethnic groups, as you mentioned, in South Sudan are the Dinka and Nuer groups. Um, there are there are many others. Uh, those groups add up. The Dinka Nuer together add up to probably, a, you know, a bit more than the majority in South Sudan. Um, but they. You know, but but there are still many other groups as well who are quite populous. Um, and and the interesting thing about the Dinka Nuer is actually they're they're very similar. Um, you know, these are not these are not drastically different groups. They're both pastoral groups who rely primarily on herding of cattle um, for their livelihoods. Um, they're very closely related in terms of their in terms of their ancestry, and they you know they they consider themselves basically brothers. Um, um uh you know if if not cousins they're they're, they're quite closely related um and so with these two because they're the because they're the uh you know two main the two largest groups they've often found themselves at um you know rivals politically and so they have a long political rivalry that dates back in some ways um uh, to the 1980s, in some ways, to the 1990s, it sort of uh, depends on when you really draw the line. But the main divide that happened was that in the middle of of South Sudan's fight, um, it, its fight for 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 liberation, as they see it, uh, this this main rebel movement, the the SPLA that formed uh, in 1983, it ended up dividing largely on Dinka versus Nuer lines. Um, there was there was uh, a new heir who who is very senior, whose name is Riyak Machar, who's who's now currently the the, the vice president, um, and he ended up actually trying to form his own organization and proclaim himself leader of it uh, during the 1990s. And this caused a very brutal, ugly uh, civil war, basically, within the rebel movement of South Sudan. And so you and, and it largely broke down on on ethnic lines now. Uh, th- these two leaders um, the ended up ended up sort of making amends and joining together before South Sudan's independence. Uh, but then after independence, you once again had a rivalry break out in terms of who would who would uh, you know be the next president of South Sudan. And once again, the the same basic lines uh, broke down in which you had Riek Machar on one side. Um, who's from the New Air. And then you had Salva Kiir, who was John Garang's successor on the other side, who was already president. Um, And once again, basically the political rivalry between those two sides um, broke out and ended up in violence. And then, and and largely supporters on both sides also broke down on ethnic lines. And then the other ethnic groups in the country as well, uh, many of their community members ended up also siding with different sides, mostly en masse.
1: So let's move forward to the start of the South Sudanese Civil War. What was the spark that kicked off all the fighting?
2: The best way to think about the start of the war in South Sudan is that South Sudanese were able to band together long enough um, to achieve independence because that was a shared goal. After South Sudan's independence, you then had the question of who would rule South Sudan. Um, and I think there was a mistake by many people who supported South Sudan's independence where they sort of saw the civil war um, that led to South Sudan's independence primarily um, as southerners fighting against northerners. But actually most historians of the war think that more southerners killed each other fighting amongst themselves than actually were fighting against northerners. So South Sudanese were always divided, uh, running up to independence, but they sort of, they held their political rivalries in check largely in order to in order to, to band together to, to get independence. Once independence came about, then the question came about is who was going to rule South Sudan. Um, and on this question, you then had uh, the vice president, Riyadh Machar, uh, tried to form his own coalition to, to contest for the presidency of the country. And then you had other political elites who also did so. This, this really resulted, this political competition really resulted in a lot of escalating tensions and these are, you know, this is in a country in which a lot of the political elite, you know, basically had their own armed followers, even though they were officially all together within the army. Um, you know, the army kind of broke down on ethnic lines in terms of who the political uh were with. So you had escalating tensions um, as there was this contest over who would lead the ruling party and therefore who would be the next uh, the next obvious president of South Sudan. As these tensions were sort of really ratcheting up, uh, you had a firefight break out within what was the presidential guard, and that was again on ethnic lines, um, largely between Dinka and Nuer soldiers. Although, although not entirely, um, you know there were other ethnic groups, of course, as well within the within the presidential guard. Uh, Once this happened, you really had several days of mayhem. Uh, which led eventually towards, uh, you know, essentially organized massacres of ethnic New wear in the capital. And Riak Machar, who who was previously the vice, until recently had been the vice president, he ended up fleeing on foot and you have this rebellion sort of kick off. The government then said, gave a narrative in which they said that all of this, you know, all this violence broke out uh, because of a planned coup attempt, as you mentioned, uh, by Riak Machar. Uh, most observers you know, think that that coup attempt never really happened um, and was largely an excuse uh, by the government um, in order to assign blame for the start of this war. Um, um, I would, uh, I, I think, I think a more accurate description, um, well, I'd say, first of all, that the history of exactly, uh, you know, how this broke out um, and in the exact chain of events and the exact chain of events that happened, I think that history is still to be written. Uh, But I think the more important um, aspect and and, uh, is that, you know, this civil war broke out uh, because, you know, South Sudan was really not able to uh, to withstand the amount of political competition uh, that was there among its top among its top leaders when all these top leaders basically had their own elements of the army who were loyal to them. Um, so you had this war breakdown as as the top leaders were contesting each other politically and essentially the army broke down on ethnic lines and then you had large scale massacres and they spread from the capital Juba out into the rest of the into uh, most of the rest of the country and that really kickstarted uh, what was, you know, a six year civil war um, that was very difficult for uh, the, the international community to stop and it was at times very, very brutal.
1: So when the fighting broke out, there was large-scale reports of villages being burnt and massacred across the country. Uh, do you think there's any truth to these reports?
2: I, I would say uh, usually those reports are quite accurate. Um, I think it's difficult for people uh, who who aren't familiar with the context to sort of comprehend, uh, you know, the, the sort of brutality that that often accompanies a war in 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 South Sudan. Um, uh, it usually when one when when a when an armed group sort of captures uh, the territory of, of a neighboring armed group, they do end up sort of burning and pillaging uh, the area. There's often lots of sexual violence um, and there's lots of indiscriminate killing um, uh, that takes place. And so the human rights reports that accompany this war were always were always uh, very brutal. At at one point in the civil war, there was. Uh, there, uh, the, the war spread to a whole new area that it hadn't entered before. And you had, this was in 2016, it, it entered the area around the capital, Juba. And you had almost, uh, you, you had hundreds of thousands of more people sort of depopulate and flee as refugees. And you were able to see from the satellite images, you know, just the destruction of villages. Um, you know, it was a huge swath uh, of, 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 actually a pretty sizable swath even of the country where you could see from the satellite that had just been burnt. Um uh, um, you know, going from, you know, when it was it was proceeding down basically hundreds of miles longer you just had village after village that, that even from the air you could see all the structures had been destroyed. Um and so that was that was a real feature of this war was the brutality that, that, that both sides showed.
1: So the UN and the African Union sent in peacekeepers to try and help curb the conflict, but that didn't seem to have much effect. Why do you think they struggled to contain this?
2: Um, a combination of a few factors. Um, first of all, I'd say that the UN peacekeepers, I would say, hadn't played a major role in reducing the violence in South Sudan. Um, peacekeepers have had a hard time sort of finding, finding a role in a country in which one of the main protagonists is the government. And peacekeepers have always struggled with how to protect uh, populations from essentially their own government when they, when they also rely on that government you know, allowing the peacekeepers to continue operating so that's always been a core challenge for the peacekeeping operations in South Sudan
1: so right now there is a peace deal signed between the two sides but it's not the first deal they've made we've had three rounds of peace deals where they've been implemented but then they've fallen apart what makes this deal different to the ones that just collapsed
2: Well, the the major the major step that happened recently uh, was that in February, they they, the two warring sides formed a unity government together. And so, really, you've had two main peace deals uh, since this since this war broke out. And the first one, um, which was signed in 2015, led to a unity government in 2016. So you had you have you know the the Riak Machar. Who'd been leading the rebellion, he he joined once again as the first vice president of the country um, and brought his and brought his opposition members with him into the government. That broke that first attempt in 2016 collapsed within a couple months um, of, of forming. And now then you had another peace deal signed in 2018, which was essentially the same model um, of the peace deal, except it included even more opposition groups. Um, this one, it, there was a lot of delays uh, and a lot of bickering and final, you know, sort of negotiations, but eventually it did lead to another one of these unity governments. So in at the end of February, Riyak Machar, uh, the rebel leader, once again returned to the capital, Juba, and took up his post as first, first vice president. And so hopefully this new unity government holds. Um, it's supposed to head towards elections. Um, And of course, the challenge with elections is you still have these two main leaders who plan to run against each other in elections. So in some ways, after all this fighting, this peace deal has more or less put us back in the exact same spot that South Sudan was at in 2013 when this war broke out, uh, which is the real challenge looking ahead.
3: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times.
1: We see it so often throughout history, where everyone has a united enemy and they work together to win the war. It's the reason the Soviets and the Americans worked together in World War II, or the US and the Afghans worked together against the Russians. But when that enemy leaves, things almost always fall apart, and the struggle in the newly created power vacuum takes place. This is where South Sudan is at the moment. They struggled against the northern elite in Khartoum, And with the international support, they gained independence. And then the power vacuum started. Two men, leading their countrymen against each other, plunging the nation into almost seven years of chaos. The two men who started this war are also at the helm of this war. So to find out more about these two men, we turn to our next guest.
5: Part
6: 2. Pipe Dreams
4: South Sudan is an interesting country because obviously it's it's the world's youngest country, um, but I mean that doesn't mean the territory's young, but a, but as a nation, as a, as a country, it's young, and, and actually that's how it feels when uh, when you arrive in Juba, um, and Juba is obviously again the capital and a microcosm of a of an extremely huge country. You know, it's one of the biggest countries on the continent, uh, uh, even even after separation.
1: Ahmed Suleiman is a senior fellow for the Africa program at Chatham House in London he's an expert on African politics and has just returned from the region he joins us today
4: uh, many internationals who work in the country you know the way to get around big towns and cities is, is to fly uh, and and, uh, and as I say the infrastructure in the country is, is is isn't in place yet the country hasn't had the time build that infrastructure that's that's needed to connect um towns and cities and um and and yeah and juba's a a city it's it's on the nile and all cities on the nile are are really kind of have, have something aesthetically pleasing about them as well
1: so once you leave juba is it much more rural and spread out
4: yeah, once you get out of Juba, like once you get out of a lot of uh, cities uh, in in the region, it's you go quite quickly f- from you know from urban dwelling to rural reality and, and you know, farmland, mountain land. It's, it, it changes very very quickly. Um, yeah, and, and, and as I say, that the kind of this is a country that's huge in terms of territory, but, but only has 10, 12 million people. Uh, occupying that space, there's a lot of space between people.
1: So this war seems to be centered around just two men: the president Salva Kiir and his vice president Riek Machar, who have been leading the two sides of this war, respectively. But let's talk about the president first. How would you summarise Salva Kiir?
4: Salva Kiir is obviously he's the president um, of South Sudan has been since 2011, since 2010, and you know at the f- kind of is paradoxical in the way that he, he's the man who who gave South Sudan its independence, but he's also the man who created the largest refugee crisis on the continent, um, and has under his watch seen, uh, you know, four million of its citizens displaced either as IDPs or as refugees. Uh, so he's given South Sudan its biggest prize, but he's also taken away and, and, and caused destruction under his watch. So there's a, there's a real paradox to, to Salva Kiir as president of South Sudan. Um, I guess his background is, is one as a fighter um, since the 60s, um, when he joined the Southern Rebellion um, and he became very prominent, rising up the ranks uh, of the military um, and alongside John Garang, Uh, the earlier leader of the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, he helped to found the SPLM and lead its military wing, um, which has subsequently become the National Army. Um, and, And he's a bit of an accidental leader in the fact that it was only following the sudden death of the founder of the SPLM, John Garang, in a helicopter crash in 2005 that was chosen to become leader of the SPLM. Um, And I think many people still see uh, in terms of the trajectory South Sudan has taken uh, and the history that Garang's death was a huge blow to the SPLM. Uh, It obviously came at a time when he had only just negotiated a peace deal with the Khartoum government uh, to end three decades of conflict and um, uh and so it really altered the course of history for both sudan and, and ultimately south sudan um i think um john garang had a vision of a new sudan a vision of a united sudan but with uh equality and its basis for all the peoples of sudan um whereas Kiir, i think had a different approach he's he's pretty much been clear on favoring an independent south sudan um, and has been vocal in the past about saying that you know, remaining as part of Sudan would be remaining as second class citizens within their country. And, and why would they want that they would prefer to have their be masters of their own destiny within in their own country. So you know, I guess this approach and his um, you know, his position as vice president of Sudan's unity government once the peace deal had been signed with the North, and as as leader of of, of the southern region I think really dictated the the destination for for South Sudan as an independent state um, and and led to independence in in July 2011 um, which of course was I think back at that time um, really you know widely welcomed internationally but also met with really great jubilation um, across the whole of the country. Uh, so, yeah, so South, Salva Kiir, very complex character in that, in that regard.
1: So, what about Riek Machar, former leader of the opposition forces and now vice president of South Sudan? How would you describe him?
4: Um, Riek is another kind of a character which juxtaposes Salva in some way. I mean, he's been a central figure in, in, in South Sudanese politics for decades. Um, he's, I guess, most well known as being the kind of bitter political rival of Salva Kiir, especially over the last decade. Um, again, he's, he's another uh, difficult character to, 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 to quantify and he's been so many things and he, he is so many things in terms of political leader, um, you know, guerrilla fighter, um, uh, you know, he, he has a PhD. From the, from the UK. Uh, so, you know, a seasoned, ambitious political and military operator, really. Um, and um, he, he's someone, I think, who has who's, who's been more savvy in terms of, he switched sides on, on, on numerous occasions during the conflict between the North and the South. Um, he's, his, his, his chief aims have been, I guess, to strengthen his own position also that of the Noéa ethnic group, which is uh, the second largest in the South after the Dinka. uh, And and, and Salva Kiir is uh, is Dinka. Um, um, And, you know, he's, as I say, he's someone who comes from a quite learned background, having studied for a PhD in the UK, uh, returned to South Sudan to join the fight with the SPLM in the 80s. again became a a commander in the armed wing of the SPLM and then uh, became uh, the deputy after the end of the conflict and and the death of John Garang. He became the deputy to Kir, the vice president of uh, the regional government. Um, His influence kind of continued to grow. He's someone who's seen as a divisive character and, and. in some circles, as, as being untrustworthy because of his, his flitting in and out of different sides, um, but his influence had continued to grow. Um, and there is always there's been feeling am- amongst a lot of people who have who have spoken to him personally, who, who who perhaps know him, that he you know he has maintained an ambitious ambition to be the president of, of South Sudan, and and gone as far as thinking that you know this is something that is divine. Destiny for him. Um, but also there is that ethnic element to it that you know having an aware in that position uh, as vice president is seen as being important to try and promote some sort of ethnic balance to, to balance out the uh, Dinka majority. Um, um and and yeah, and, and and I think really the two actors themselves have uh, been defined by their relationship with each other and in a lot in a lot of ways, particularly over the last decade.
1: So after years of fighting between these two, how much force does each side have left in the field?
4: I mean, who has the momentum when the ceasefire was called? Um, the numbers are difficult to define. I think what we do know, or what I know, is that the government is clearly in a position of strength militarily and that uh, militarily the war has been over for some time. Um you know, I think largely the SPLM in opposition had been militarily defeated. Uh, and, um, and, and what you now have in terms of the security picture and the force situation is a real fragmentation of many armed groups across the country. You know, so, I, I mean, you have forces that are seen as being loyal to Kiev, forces that are seen as being loyal to Mashar, but, but that can be quite fluid um and and it's not necessarily easy to pinpoint which forces in which area at a particular time um give their loyalty to mashar or to to Keir. and and of course i think there has been opportunity in that for in particular the government who have had more resources uh to um to try and buy off Uh, some of the support, some of the commanders uh, who have been supporting uh, Mashar during, you know, during the years of conflict that have taken place. Um, I mean, I should say that the kind of security sector reform piece and managing the armed armed forces across the group uh, across the country is going to be one of the really vital tasks of the transition. uh, what we've also seen is that uh, both actors, in particular at Mashara as well, have been using this opportunity for unification. And there are these cantonment sites where forces are, uh, have been directed to, to move to, uh, for reunification and registration. Um, and they've been using this to amass further troops at training sites uh, near Juba or elsewhere. in, 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 you know, in advance of this unification and and kind of promising positions, promising roles for commanders, uh, and promotions and resources. Uh, But, you know, the difficulty being, uh, there is no clear indication as to where the resources for uh, security sector reform are going to come from. And uh, if these promises aren't met, um, and if, you know, the, you know, the, the the reform process isn't conducted, then I think in the same way that it has previously, could have a, a situation where uh, this, uh, you know, this peace deal, this cessation of hostilities could quickly unravel, um, especially if, if it seemed to be that the two uh, two sides and, and in fact, different, different elements are continuing to compete. Um, and what we've seen already is that some rival rebel commanders, and understandably so, have refused to assemble together. You know, there are there are lots of enmities that are ongoing between fighting units that have been inactive, uh, hostilities against each other, and are expected now to come together by to uh, suddenly and 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 and, and unite. Um, uh, so you've got, you know, these recruitment drives, you've got these issues around uh, fighters and, and units that have been fighting each other for years. Um, and what you need, I think, in, uh, in, in the short term is, is kind of this unification process to kickstart and for there to be uh, deployment of these unified forces so that there isn't lost faith in the process. But as I was saying... Uh, the 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 COVID nineteen situation has added a whole layer of complexity to this um, because you know the, the unification process is stalling that the joint training process has had to be suspended because of um, because of the threat of spreading the virus and and so that adds another layer to this uh, to this situation.
1: This isn't the first ceasefire call to end the war though. We've had peace three times now, where a ceasefire has been called and talks have been successful, but every single time it backslides into war again. What makes this round of talks different from other ones? Is this peace in our time, or are we likely to just drift back into war again sometime soon?
4: It's probably this deal has a a slightly better foundation than the the last one, which, which collapsed, but... I'm not sure whether it's enough to mask any of the animosities that, that really are underlying the the differences and, and, and the fragmentation that has taken place across the country, both politically and on the security side of things as well. And, and you know, not just that, but societally, I think there's a number of, you know, we, we can't underestimate the psychological impact as, as well on, on people having experienced years of conflict and displacement and, and asking them to reconcile. Um, it, it's going to take time. And what we're seeing, I think, is also partly about this peace deal is, is is that it's an elite peace deal, and one about appeasing a group of individuals who started the war in the, in the first place. And, and people very much, I think, with cautious optimism hope that they've seen error in their ways and but that but the past history that you pointed to the recent past history history suggests otherwise and it will take that it will take a lot to overcome this in competition that's ingrained in these um, uh, these these individuals i mean um again as i, w- I won't spend too much time on it because i'm not a health expert but politically speaking you know this covid 19 pandemic comes at an, a terrible time for the reformation of the the transitional government um, you know the government hasn't been fully established yet uh, what you have in in that establishment is an extremely bloated government you know but one that would be looked at as functional and streamlined in terms of taking on democratic uh, capacity building tasks um you've got five vice presidents you know one first vice president who's ray mashar they've been sworn in you've got the council of ministers who's been sworn in in the middle of uh the middle of march um but you've got you know governors and commissioners and um in the counties and in the regions uh, of the 10 states which have now been you know uh country has gone back to a system of having 10 states um, that uh, that haven't been appointed yet so you don't have a a fully structured governance system uh, outside of the capital in the country Uh, there are you know overlying and underlying disputes around that with regards to land and territoriality and uh, boundaries uh, which need to be uh, dealt with um and uh in uh, in the early days we've already seen some signs of dispute with the uh, President uh first Vice President Mashar claiming that President Keir has appointed officials without consulting with a key element of this new framework, which is a collegial presidency, including the president and the vice presidents, um, in the appointment of, of, of certain officials. Um so already there is, you know, some underlying tension, but there, are, there there's always going to be issues for work. Um, but um, yes, I think, I think really, what everyone is is looking to see in in the case of South Sudan is is the political will and the implementation of that, uh, but it's been severely lacking in the past.
1: So one of the main bright spots in South Sudan was the country's oil reserves. The plan during peace talks with the North was for the oil to be pumped from South Sudan through Sudan to the Red Sea so they could sell it. But now there's talk of China looking into building a pipeline from South Sudan through Kenya to the Indian Ocean. Why would South Sudan be looking to a southern pipeline instead?
4: Um, uh, The main driver for it, of course, was uh, South Sudan wanting to position themselves as closer in alliance with East Africa. Um, than with North, you know, North Africa with Sudan uh, under the Bashir regime, so that they could have control over their own infrastructure. Uh, but as I understand it, you know, the reserves in South Sudan are dwindling.
1: So, what do you think lies in store for South Sudan over the next year or so?
4: Um, as I said, um, I think we're now looking at a, you know a global pandemic uh, which has hit everywhere uh, on. You know, and, and really South Sudan is, is going to need to respond or, or be responding to, uh, to this situation as, as most countries in the world have. I think things have been delayed um, in, on the African continent, of course. And South Sudan has over the weekend registered its first case um, of, of COVID-19, of confirmed uh, COVID-19. Uh, so I think this is going to have a real impact on the political uh, security humanitarian situation given you know you still have uh, over hundred eighty thousand people in protection of civilian sites um, who who will be much more at risk you know people within urban centers as well who are uh, uh, cramped closer together um, will be at risk as well so I think the government's prevention strategy and and it, it has in fairness moved quite quickly to try and lock down its own borders to try and prevent uh, COVID-19 coming in from elsewhere um, but, but as we know this is a country like many others in the region which is starting from a, a very uh, low base in terms of the public health system that it has and it's very underprepared um, so I think what we're going to see here is uh, again, as I was talking about the, the minimal infrastructure and the impact that the war has had on 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 that infrastructure, but has really impacted um, health facilities as well. Uh, so, trying to pre- prevent the spread of that will be a priority for the government at a time when it's it's not yet even been fully formed. Uh, that might be something um, that becomes um, quite a uh, a unifier. If I may put it that way, in, in that it may bring competing sides together to focus on this task. Um, so there, there there are lots of areas I think that that need to be moved forward. Of course, when you're starting from, from uh, the position that South Sudan is, and and you know the I think the default position will be one of scepticism in the deal, but then also hope that perhaps you know the penny will drop and and the leaders will try and prioritise. Um, delivering for the people in the short term
5: want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money well i've got the podcast for you i'm sean piles and i host nerd wallets smart money podcast on our show we help listeners like you make the most of your finances i sit down with nerd wallets team of nerds personal finance experts in credit cards banking investing and more And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: After independence, the international community somewhat stepped away from South Sudan, and the country rapidly collapsed in on itself creating the biggest refugee crisis in the continent, and instability amongst the entire region. But from every crisis comes opportunity. Countries are now eyeing up this weakened and desperate state and seeing how it can be used to their advantage. Now Egypt, Ethiopia, China, Uganda, and the Saudis all look to use South Sudan as a pawn in their overall much larger regional game. So why would these nations be taking interest in the Civil War? And what does each side hope to gain from all of this? Well, for that,
6: we turn to our next guest.
5: Part 3. Fifth
6: time's the charm. Uh, I am pessimistic about this round of negotiations. Uh, I see no particular evidence that the principles that are involved uh, have fundamentally changed uh, what they are after.
1: John Campbell is the former U.S. ambassador to Nigeria, the U.S. director of U.N. political affairs and a senior fellow of African policy at the Council of Foreign Relations, as well as an author of some of the best books on African politics.
6: We are very pleased to have him join us today. Uh, What could cause them to change? Uh, Quite possibly international pressure. One of the issues that I find very interesting uh, is the discussion, and it's not anything more than that, the discussions that come out of various foreign ministries, uh, political commentators uh, outside of South Sudan, to the effect that in fact some kind of significant uh, outside intervention, uh, is going to be required. Um, what that might be, uh, of course, is hard to know, um, particularly given the readiness, uh, ready accusations of neo-colonialism. But the fact that somehow or another South Sudan's, uh, salvation Uh, would be to go into some kind of international receivership. I think these conversations reflect the pessimism that uh, a new round of negotiations uh, will be any different from previous ones.
1: So the U.S. were very heavily involved in the backing of an independent South Sudan. But now that they have their independence, the U.S. seems to be taking a fairly hands-off approach.
6: Why is the U.S. stepping back from South Sudan? Well, it's a very, very interesting question. Uh, In the 1980s, Garang began to build an American constituency for the SPLM, uh, and he did a very sophisticated job. What he did was he presented to a receptive American audience a highly binary view of what was going on in Sudan and South Sudan, which of course then were all part of the same country. Binary in that Garang presented the civil war that was underway as essentially North versus South, Arab versus African, and Islamic versus Christian he managed to build a significant American constituency for the SPLM based particularly in the churches. And Congress reflected that public opinion. So that when South Sudan became independent in 2011, it was viewed, the event was viewed with rapture and with what I would, I would suggest, were utterly unreal expectations. Lo and behold, those unreal expectations were not met. I would not go so far as to say that the United States and the international community have simply washed their hands of South Sudan. Uh, they continue to provide significant financial assistance, mostly through through the UN uh, and other international agencies. But there is no question that the the massive support that independence for South Sudan enjoyed in the 1990s uh, and the early 2000s has dissipated not least because of the horrific bloodshed of the civil wars still underway uh, which objectively uh, appears to have no justification whatsoever
1: with the overthrow of the government in khartoum do you think this is likely to be a complete change in relations between sudan and south sudan or will it just be business as usual
6: well i think there's real potential uh, uh for there to be uh to be a really significant change um here though um the problem is with juba uh uh given the rivalry uh, uh, uh between the president and the vice president, given the fact that the country is either in civil war and i would maintain that it is uh or uh is on the brink of it. Uh, how can there be a meaningful reconciliation? Um, it's very interesting. At the time of the Comprehensive Peace Accords in 2005, the hope by the international community was that Khartoum would, in fact, pursue a policy of democratization uh, and uh, and federalism, uh, as, such as to... Uh, uh, persuade the South Sudanese to remain part of the Sudan. Well, al-Bashir did nothing of the sort, uh, and and hence when a referendum occurred in 2011, uh, South Sudan overwhelmingly voted uh, to become an independent country. But at the time of 2005, the general thinking was that Sudan and South Sudan were far better off together than separate.
1: So South Sudan's financial hope has always been tied in with their oil reserves, but there may be less oil than we first imagined. China has been looking to build a pipeline from South Sudan through Kenya to the Indian Ocean to secure another source of cheap oil for Beijing. With oil prices so low at the moment, though, how likely do you think that is to happen?
6: Well, uh, China, of course, is looking to secure uh, access, uh, access to oil. Uh, and there is oil in South Sudan, though I would be careful about exaggerating exactly how much there is. Um, uh, I, I would maintain it uh, uh, that we don't that we don't really know. The notion of a pipeline from South Sudan through through, uh, through Kenya again recalls uh, the colonial period when uh, the british or some uh, in the foreign office were interested in the idea of south sudan becoming part of kenya of course it's immediately adjacent to it Uh, uh, and it was a a reflection of the fact uh, that the northern part of sudan was islamic and in many respects part of the middle east whereas south sudan is is a sub-saharan african Uh, and Christian. Now, whether, in fact, the pipeline that is being uh, brooded about actually comes about, I think, depends, in part at least, on what happens to the Chinese economy, Uh, and in the short term, just how badly the Chinese economy has been wounded by uh, the coronavirus uh, uh, epidemic. You're talking about something that's going to require a great deal of capital. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, it's very hard to build a pipeline in an environment in which there is virtually no security. And there is virtually no security uh, in South Sudan um, uh, so long as uh, the civil war persists. Before we leave oil altogether, uh, right now at least, the world is awash with oil. Uh, and all you have to do is look uh, at the way the uh, the international price per barrel has plummeted. Um, so that right now, in the short term, it's difficult to imagine a massive investment, which is what the pipeline would involve, uh, in, a, um, in an area which is extremely unstable.
1: Egypt is taking an interest in the civil war, hoping to use refugees and instability to weaken its regional rival, Ethiopia, right across the South Sudanese border. This stems mostly over the border disputes between Addis and Cairo. Do you think Cairo favors a particular side of the civil war, or are they just happy to add a thorn to the side of Ethiopia?
6: Well, for precisely the reasons that you have have just cited, um, uh, Ethiopia is in the process of constructing an immense dam. Uh, anything that has to do with the, the, uh, the flow of the Nile um, uh, from Ethiopia through Uganda into South Sudan, into Sudan, and then eventually into Egypt uh, is, is absolutely crucial uh, to Egypt. And Egyptian involvement uh, in Sudan and South Sudan uh, is a very old song. Um, yeah, it dates back to at least the 18th century. I don't get the impression that the, that the Egyptians favor one side or another uh, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the Civil War. Also, I think we have to be very careful here. Um, we have to be careful not to, um, how to put it, over-intellectualize or uh, over-organize what the egyptian response uh might might be what we're talking about is very long-term anxieties uh and you know how those anxieties will play out um is going to depend on uh, on a whole lot of things not least on what happens in um, uh, in south sudan if for example there were a stable government in South Sudan that was reconciled to the Khartoum government, if oil was flowing from South Sudan through Sudan to the ports on the Red Sea, if the revenue from the oil was being devoted for uh, to public purpose, uh, that would be a very, very different situation from what we have now. One problem is, even if most of that syllogism were to prove to be true over time, there is the difficulty of the political class uh, in in South Sudan. Um, The experience has been that political classes in oil producing countries uh, tend essentially to capture the state so that they themselves enjoy the uh, the profits from the oil and very little of the profits from oil are used for development or for public purposes Uh, look at nigeria as an example
1: so what about countries like kenya or uganda why are they so keen to see a peaceful resolution to this conflict
6: well um for um exactly the same reason that um uh, that, that Kenya or the other, uh, the other countries in the region are, are concerned. The civil war in South Sudan has led to massive refugee flows, it's disrupted trade, um, uh, it has the, uh, the potential for destabilizing uh, or contributing to the destabilization of what are in fact very weak states.
1: Saudi Arabia, Jordan and the UAE are buying up huge chunks of cheap land for farming in Sudan, knowing that their countries have very small amounts of arable territory. If the war comes to an end, do you think these countries would buy even cheaper land in South Sudan to create a sort of bread basket for the Gulf states?
6: So, oh yes, yes. In other words, there is a potential for significant, uh, for significant investment uh, in, uh, in agriculture uh, in, in, this, in the South Sudan. Uh, South Sudan is relatively underpopulated. Um, the, uh, 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 much of the soil is good. Um, it's underpopulated in part because of the horrific toll uh, the more or less in, you know, incessant civil wars uh, have, uh, uh, have exacted on the country. Um, the civil war that ended in, um, in 2005 One estimate is that it left 2 million people dead.
1: So looking at the photos from the fighting, one thing you quickly notice is that all the weapons are either Russian-made or Egyptian copies of Russian weapons. Uh, Is Russia selling them these weapons, or are they just leftovers from previous wars
6: and Cold War stockpiles? Um, In that part of Africa, uh, guns uh, are absolutely no problem. Uh, The region is awash with weapons. Uh, it's awash with weapons from uh, a whole host of civil wars. Um, the collapse of the Gaddafi regime in Libya is often cited, but it's, it's much, much broader than that. Uh, weapons are cheap, they're easy to get, and you don't have to look for outside um, uh, uh, sources uh, to buy them.
1: So Russia is extending some aid to South Sudan, whilst being very heavily involved with South Sudan's neighbor, the Central African Republic. What is Moscow doing here in Central Africa?
6: I think what the Russians are doing in, the, in, uh, in that part of Africa in general uh, is that uh, essentially they've got two goals. Uh, one is purely mercantile. Uh, they want to sell stuff. Uh, and uh, if, um, uh, if the buyers want guns, um, they, will, they will supply them. Um, I think the Russians, um, and here I'm referring specifically to the Putin, Putin government, uh, also sees the region as a way that Russia can reassert great power aspirations. Um, so that actually being present and being regarded as a player uh, uh, becomes almost more important than any practical consequences of it.
1: So let's talk some solutions here. If South Sudan were to see a huge flow of money from the West come in, how likely would that be to actually solve the problem?
6: Economic development and money will work only if the political issues are resolved first. Um, if there was a massive inflow, or even more massive inflow, because there has been a massive inflow, but if there was an even more of a massive inflow of uh, of money into uh, into South Sudan, how much of it would be stolen? How much of it would be uh, would be diverted? Um, uh, who, after all? Uh, is buying those incredibly lavish mansions being built in Kampala uh, and uh, other sort of uh, East African cities. With a country uh, like uh, like South Sudan, you have to start with a political solution, then move to a the establishment of security, and then you can talk about. Uh, Uh, about uh, outside investment. I would also note that Africans are remarkably entrepreneurial, and I would suggest that if you had a halfway decent government and if you had a reasonable degree of security, uh, in fact, uh, the South Sudanese themselves uh, would uh, jumpstart uh, uh, the, the economy.
1: So right now, there's an election scheduled for 2022. But do you think Kia will be able to hold on to the presidency until then?
6: It depends what we mean by hold the presidency until then. I think you can hold on to the office, yes. Uh, but what exactly does that mean? Further, what do elections mean? In places like South Sudan, an independent voter hardly exists. Voters do not have freedom of choice. In that sense, in the Western sense of what elections are, elections don't really exist. What you can have in 2022 is a kind of ceremony uh, a kind of aspiration for what elections might become in the future but elections as a way of resolving fundamental political differences such as they do in the uk or the us that is unimaginable at this stage
1: so if you had a magic wand how would you solve this
6: problem if i had a magic wand Uh, I would look to some kind of intervention by an African entity, uh, maybe under the umbrella of the African Union, combined with heavy international support through presumably various UN agencies and blessed by the Security Council, in which the South Sudanese government is removed and replaced by some kind of interim arrangement. In other words, you start all over again uh, in building a South Sudanese state. Now, South Sudan is not going to go away. Uh, I mean, it remains... Uh, It remains poor, but it's Christian and animist. It has very little to do culturally uh, with Sudan. So I think a reversal of 2011 and South Sudanese independence uh, is simply not on. Uh, And... If South Sudan were to be remerged into Sudan, uh, I think that would probably create more problems than it would solve.:
1: So there's no easy solution to this problem.
6: There is a solution. There's always a solution. Part of it is the passage of time. Part of it is uh, part of it is chance. Uh, what happens? if the president or the vice president dies, and they will eventually, someday. In other words, the political crisis is so wrapped up in personalities that the personalities can change.
1: If a change in personality is what the country needs, are either of these men likely to step down without being forced or executed?
6: Oh, I don't think they'll. I don't think they would give up power voluntarily. No, I don't think so. No. Nope.
1: Well, in that case, where do you see the war going over the next year or so?
6: Subject to chance, uh, there is a round of negotiations going on now. Uh, as long as there are some kinds of talks going on, that could inhibit some of the violence. But it's back to chance. Uh, What has happened in South Sudan is that the Noor versus Dinka and the other ethnic rivalries have been inflamed and politicized. That means at the local level, you can suddenly have an outbreak of violence that then spreads. So it becomes very, very hard to predict. Now, I don't need to, I don't need to reiterate how horrible civil war in South Sudan is and the impact that it can have on the other countries of the region, not least because of refugee flows, so that what happens in South Sudan is very much a black swan uh, in terms of the outlook for, um, for, central, for Central and East Africa. And by the way, we have not talked at all about what the impact might be of the coronavirus. Um, in, in fact, uh, it's very hard to know uh, how widespread it is, what its impact is, And of course, it will be evolving in a country with essentially no public health facilities, uh, except those that are maintained by by NGOs and in concentrated um, geographical uh, areas. Um, And yet, if you have a significant portion of the population, particularly the political class, sickened, that's going, to have, uh, that's going to have political consequences.
1: South Sudan is in a pretty rough position. Its big draw card, the oil reserves, have been dwindling, already sold off. The civil war has driven away many of its potential investors, and we go into another election with the same two candidates from the same two tribes. We have been here before, a peace deal on the table hoping to end an argument where none of the fundamentals have changed. The only real difference is that there is even more blood spilled by each side, and more guns to go around. This is a country that's entering the COVID crisis with five vice presidents, but only four ventilators for the entire nation. One that has used its resources to fight itself. Maybe this COVID crisis may give them the external enemy to bind each side together. Maybe the war exhaustion might be enough to deter people from the fight, but I have some doubts. The nation is at the same crossroad again. The decision now comes down to just a few men to either unite the country and try and improve itself like Kenya or Rwanda, or turn back around and roll the dice again on another round of fighting. The biggest problem, though, is the man to make that decision is the same man who kicked all of this off in the first place. Thank you so much for listening to the program. We are always thrilled to watch the numbers go up each and every month. Today, though, I have some news for the show. We've been sent a number of emails and messages all asking for the same thing, episode transcription. This way people can cite parts of the show for assignments or read along when note-taking. I personally love the idea, and we even had a friend of the show come forward and offer to transcribe our episodes for us. He already provided a fantastic transcription for our last Russian Arctic episode, which will be available on our website this week. We would love to offer all episodes with transcriptions, but we also need to support the people who would take the long time to write them out properly. Right now, we have a handful of fantastic Patreons who are supporting the show, helping us with the costs of hosting, the websites, the emails, and all the other stuff that comes with running a show like this. And if we could get just 10 or so more Patreons a month, we would have enough money to get the show completely transcribed and available for download. Even if it's just 5 to $10 a month, it really does help the show, as we don't do ads and we're completely self-funded. So if a couple of dollars a month sound like a good investment to you, please feel free to help us out And help donate to our Patreon so we can get these transcriptions out to you as everyone's requested. You can find Alan Boswell on Twitter at Alan Boswell. As well as the amazing show he hosts, The Horn. A geopolitics podcast centred around the Horn of Africa. He's been my go-to for that region and we're thrilled to have him on the program. Ahmed Suleiman. And his great work with Chatham House can be found on Twitter at HOA. It's hard to find someone else who's more versed in the politics of East Africa, and I highly recommend you follow him. We were thrilled to have John Campbell on the show, and we'll be having him back later on this year. He has a fantastic book called Nigeria and the Nation State, Rethinking Diplomacy, where he goes to the inner workings of Africa's most populous nation. And if you want to follow him on Twitter, he's available at CampbellCFR. It wouldn't be a Redline episode without a huge thanks going out to Mark Spencer from the Climactic podcast who provided the extra vocals for this episode. We're proud to have him as part of the Redline team and we're thrilled to be working with him on this project. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to seeing you again next fortnight with another international episode. But until then, good night.